Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you guys today and uh, to worship the Lord. Thank you, Brent and team, for leading us this morning. If you're new with us, again, thank you for joining us. And uh, we'd love to get to know you. Inside your bulletin, there's a connection card. And when you feel comfortable just letting us know your name and maybe a way to contact you, we'd, we'd love to reach out and, and tell you more about our church and get to know you better as well. Um, so thank you for being here. Uh, we've been going through the, the book of Acts the past uh, couple of months, and today we're going to keep looking at a passage in Acts. It's one of the, uh, the first sermons ever preached in the Christian church. Uh, this was around the year 30 AD, or if you're in the universities now, I know they use CE now. So it's 30 CE, um, or AD, whatever you want to say. But... Uh, this is the scene. The Apostle Peter was standing in Jerusalem alongside the 11 other apostles, and he began to preach to an enormous crowd of thousands of Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem from all the parts of the world to celebrate uh, this, this, one of their main feasts, the Feast of the Wheat Harvest, which uh, is also called Pentecost. And this crowd of Jews was flocking to Peter and to the group of Christians there, about 120 Christians, because the Holy Spirit had just descended upon the Christians from heaven, and suddenly the Christians began to preach. They began to declare the, the mighty works of God to the Jews. And since all of these Jews came from different parts of the world, they all spoke different languages. And the Christians were speaking in each and every one of the unique languages native to those Jewish travelers. This was a miracle. And the Jews were baffled by this. I mean, they couldn't even understand each other. I mean, they're speaking in different languages. And all of a sudden, the Christians are speaking to them. And they understand them perfectly. And the Jews just looked around at each other, and they said, what does this mean? What is going on here? And so on behalf of the Christians, Peter stood up and he preached with a loud voice to the Jews. And he said, what you're seeing here, this is a sign that the last days are here. Remember, he says, the ancient prophet Joel. Remember your ancient prophet Joel who prophesied that in the last days God would pour out his spirit onto all flesh? And he said that they would prophesy with their lips and they would see visions and they would dream dreams and God would display his wonders in the heavens and on the earth below. He said, this is what's happening. The last days of this world have begun. He says, so turn to the Lord and be saved. Turn to the Lord and be saved from his wrath. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what he says. And so Peter here showed the Jews how the events of Pentecost were fulfilling ancient prophecies from the Jews' own ancient scriptures. And today we Christians call those sacred scriptures the Old Testament of the Bible. And so now Peter is again going to use the Jews' sacred writings to show them from their writings that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and that he is the savior that they'd been waiting for for thousands of years. And Peter will tell them that this Jesus, whom the Jews had just killed with the help of the Romans, is in fact Yahweh. 
that he was the God of the Jews who they had been worshiping for thousands of years. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible with you, please open up to Acts 2, chapter 22. And um, I don't hear the rustling of many pages. So I'm going to trust that some of you have already turned there, and some of you are looking at the screen, and some of you are on your phone. Hopefully reading the Bible. And in today's passage, this is what I want us to think about before we read it, okay? The way that Peter preaches by the power of the Holy Spirit is, is really pretty fascinating. He, he does, from what I can see, two things at the same time. First, Peter is basically preaching Christian beliefs 101 to this crowd of, of unbelieving Jews. And he's telling them the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And these, what he shares, are the exact same core doctrines that we hold to at Cedar Home Baptist Church. And so Peter's sermon here is the earliest account we have of Christian beliefs being preached publicly after Jesus returned to heaven. And while Peter is doing this, while he's teaching them Christian beliefs 101, he is at the same time preaching another sermon. He is showing them that, he's showing the Jews specifically, that God the Father has clearly testified that Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ. And so he's essentially preaching two sermons at the same time. I'm not as gifted as Peter, and so I'm going to have to preach today's message as two separate sermons, okay? Um, And so we're going to look today at how Peter preaches Christian beliefs 101. And next Sunday, God willing, we're gonna look at how Peter shows the Jews that God the Father has clearly testified that this Jesus is both Lord and the Christ. So that's the context, that's the foundation. And before we look at this sermon on Christian beliefs 101, let's ask the Lord to continue to help us. Father in heaven, thank you for your steadfast love. We confess as individuals and as a human race that we have sinned greatly against you. We have rebelled against you and your word. For all of us here who trust in Jesus, we thank you for forgiving us by applying to our souls the sin-killing atonement that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. And we ask that you would please help us to turn away from our sin and to turn away from the temptations of this world, to turn away from the passions of our flesh every day, and to turn to you as the desire of our hearts, and turn to you as the one who makes us justified in God's sight, and the one who declares us righteous in God's sight, to declare you as, as uh, to turn to you as, as the one who loves us with a steadfast love. And for those here, God, who have not trusted in you for life and salvation, we ask that you would do for them what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, please use your gospel, your good news, to make them born again through faith as they trust in Jesus as the one and only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now as we read your word, as we study some of the core doctrines, teachings of the Christian faith that you spoke through the Apostle Peter, 
We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would help us now. Please help us to pay attention. To uh, Please help us to give us understanding. Please teach not only our minds, but teach our hearts. Please take these truths and, and use them to soften our hearts so that we can respond to you in worship and thankfulness and love. Please protect us now from evil and protect everyone on this campus from evil right now, please. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son, Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Acts 2... Verse 22 through verse 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen. So this part of of Peter's sermon is packed with Christian beliefs, which we also call Christian theology. And I actually counted about 15 different doctrines or teachings that Peter teaches in this passage alone. And we're not going to cover them all today, but I want us to examine seven of them. Seven Christian beliefs, core doctrines of Christianity that Peter shares here. And so whether you are a new follower of Jesus or whether you've been following Jesus for many years, I encourage you to pay attention because these core beliefs from God's word will help you know Jesus. They will help you to enjoy Jesus. 
They will help you to obey Jesus, and they will help you to share Jesus with others. So first, Peter teaches here that God became a human being. First, Peter teaches that God became a human being. In Acts 2.22 here, Peter refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, a man. That's how he starts it. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Um, he says that God became a man. And the Apostle John writes the exact same thing in John 1.14. John said, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the doctrine or teaching of God the Son becoming a human is called the doctrine of the Incarnation. Okay? Incarnation means in the flesh. Okay? Carne, carne asada, right? Sometimes you guys like to eat that. That means flesh, grilled flesh is what that means. Carne. And so in the flesh, in carne, in the flesh, the doctrine of the Incarnation. God came to us in the flesh. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Son left heaven and he became a human embryo inside the uterus of a virgin whom God selected, whose name was Mary. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This doctrine of the incarnation is what we celebrate every year at Christmas. And hopefully we celebrate it more than just at Christmas. That God the Father loved the world so much that he gave to us his only son, Jesus, in the flesh, so that whoever believes in him will not perish eternally, but will have everlasting life. When Jesus became a human being, he experienced everything that we experience as humans, except that Jesus was without sin. He never committed sin. He never disobeyed any of God's law. But he had, he had a body. He had a physical body just like yours and mine. He was a Jewish baby who grew to be a Jewish child, who grew up to be a Jewish teenager, who grew up to be a Jewish man. Wayne Grudem writes, as a child, and I don't know if this is on the screen or no. Is this on the screen? Okay, sweet. Thanks. As a child, he grew and became strong. And as he grew older... He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, according to Luke 2.52. He became wearied from a journey. After a fast, he was hungry. And while on the cross, he said, I thirst. His body was in every respect just like ours. So because of Jesus' humanity, the writer of Hebrews would go on to say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, the implication is, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we celebrate Christmas this season, um, we celebrate that Jesus became human like us. Let's remember that he has experienced what we are experiencing. And he looks down at us from heaven and he knows how you feel. 
and he loves us. And so he, he calls all of us who trust in him to draw near to him. That's what he says here in Hebrews. Draw near to me so that you may receive more mercy, more grace from my throne of grace to help you in your time of need. Because I've been where you're at. That's an encouragement, huh? <laughs> it's very different. Yet we must understand that this is not how many world religions think. So there was a, a, for instance, deism was a, a, a long-held worldview that God was, is not connected to the creation, but that he created the creation and let it, like, kind of like a, a, I think the illustration is like a watchmaker makes a watch. He makes the watch, he leaves the watch, he lets it tick, and he lets it go, and then he goes to another room. That's not the story of Jesus Christ. He is God. He loves us. He has added flesh to himself. And he's intimately involved in the details of our lives. And he cares. So the first one there, Jesus, God, became a man. Second, Peter preaches that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Peter testifies to Jesus' dual nature as God and man when he says in Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So yes, Jesus became a human being, but in doing so, he did not stop being fully God. Before he came to earth, God the Son was entirely and only God. And when he came to earth, he added to himself humanity. And from that time, from the time that Jesus became a human embryo, he was 100% God and now 100% man. And Jesus never removed his humanity from himself. He never removed his humanity at the cross or in his resurrection or when he ascended to heaven. In fact, Jesus is still fully man and fully God as he reigns in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus will return as a man to earth. He's fully God, fully man. And this is crucial, and we're not going to go through it, but the first two or three hundred years of Christianity, there were major debates about this. Major debates, how could God be fully, how could Jesus be fully God and fully man? But this is the truth of the Bible, and it's crucial to believe this, because Jesus, um, ultimately, there's no other way than this doctrine to believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God. There's no other way that humanity can be saved from sin. There's no other way. Jesus had to be both God and man in order to perfectly save us from our sin through his death and resurrection. Now let's talk about how each of those aspects contribute to our salvation. Since Jesus was fully God, he was able to live a life as a human without sin, right? That put him in his own category. He lived the human life without sin. And it was crucial that Jesus lived a life without sin. If we think about the background of the Old Testament and the Jewish sacrifices, what kind of sacrifice do you need? A spotless lamb. A spotless lamb. Jesus was our spotless, perfect lamb of God without blemish, who's the only one ever fit to perfectly bear the wrath of God toward our sins. And also because Jesus was fully God, he alone had the supernatural power to defeat death and to rise from the dead in glory. 
Now, since Jesus became fully human, he was able to substitute himself for us when he died on the cross. Because instead of us suffering the wrath of God toward our sin, the God-man Jesus suffered for us in our place. Because Jesus suffered and died as a perfect human, he is able to save every human who turns to him and trusts in him for eternal life. And just like Jesus' human body was raised from the tomb, so also every human has been, who's been united to Jesus through faith, they will be physically raised from the dead someday for eternal blessing in body and in soul. The Bible calls that glorification. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He, he, he was and is an infinitely better Adam. who's the father of the human race. Jesus was and is infinitely better than each and every one of us. Okay, I want you to think about that real quick, okay? Who is representing you to God? Have you trusted in Jesus? Is God your representative to, to God or are you still under Adam? He, is he your head? Is he your representative to God, the one who brought sin into the world? For all who trust in Jesus, Jesus is our representative. He's our advocate. He's our high priest. And because of that, we want to worship him and thank him. We want to worship him with our lives because Jesus is God. He is man. He is our glory. He's our salvation. Right? Amen. Okay, third, Peter preaches that this is, okay, now this one's kind of a head trip, this one. So you got to focus here. This is what he preaches of. Peter preaches that God's sovereignty works together with human choice to achieve God's plans. God's sovereignty works together with human choice to achieve God's plans. In Acts 2.23, Peter preaches, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, so Peter says here that Jesus' death happened not only according to God's foreknowledge, meaning that God knew beforehand that Jesus would die, but also Jesus' death happened according to God's definite plan. Okay? This means that the, the incarnation of Jesus to save humans from sin was not God's plan B. God the Father did not deliver up his son Jesus in reaction to humanity's need of salvation from sin. Instead, this verse and others testify that God the Father delivered up his son Jesus according to the definite plan of God, which was in place from eternity past. And later in Acts uh, chapter 4, Peter and John pray to God, and they affirm that the people who killed Jesus were doing what God the Father had, quote, predestined to take place. So God's sovereignty means that God is the supreme authority over everything, and his plans are always accomplished. And his plans included the death, resurrection, and exaltation of God the Son, Jesus. Okay? So there's the sovereign will part. 
And while Peter affirms that, he affirms God's sovereign will in Acts 2.23, he also says that the crucifixion and death of Jesus happened according to the free choice of men. God did not robotically control that angry mob and force them to arrest and kill Jesus. The angry mob wanted to kill Jesus. Those Jewish and Roman men chose to spit on Jesus. They chose to whip him. They chose to nail him to a cross. They chose to stab him in the chest. So that means that humanity was totally culpable in the death of Jesus. And the guilt of Jesus' death is on the head of humanity. Human beings are eternally responsible for the choices they make. The Bible clearly teaches that. And at the same time, God's sovereign plans are always accomplished in our lives and in the universe. And the Bible never blames God for doing evil or for causing sin. Humanity is to blame for the fact that our bodies and souls are totally corrupt because of our rebellion against God. From the Old Testament to the New, this is the, this is the thread of teaching you see from the Old Testament to the New Testament that the Bible affirms both the sovereignty of God and the choice of man. How God makes his sovereign will and his sovereign plans work together with human will and human plans, we cannot fully understand. It is a mystery too great for our comprehension. But what we do know is what is clearly revealed in Scripture, that God is perfectly wise, that he's perfectly fair, that he's perfectly good, that he's perfectly loving, and that we can trust him, and that he always does what is right. He is a wiser judge, a fairer judge, a more loving judge than any of us could ever be. That's the reality. He is the best judge ever. And so we thank God for that, and we exalt God for that, because even though man meant Jesus' death for evil, even though Satan meant Jesus' death for evil, God meant it for our good and for the glory of God's name. Amen? Fourth, Peter preaches that the death and resurrection of Jesus are essential to God's gospel. Okay? So when we're thinking about what is the, the gospel, because we hear that a lot, we, read, we see book titles with that, we see conferences with that, we talk about it with our friends, we see it in different statements and church statements of faith. This gospel, the core of it is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? In Acts 2.24, Peter preaches, God raised him, Jesus, up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it. So the, the death of Jesus was essential to the gospel message of the early Christians. Now get this, it, it was not only because it meant that Jesus suffered and died to remove our sins from us, which is true and which is great news for us, but the other reason why the, the early Christians had to be really clear that Jesus really died, and this is a core part of the gospel, is because that was a major stumbling block for the Jews and for everybody else from different world religions. Because the Jews did not believe, they believed in a Messiah, but they did not believe the Messiah would die or could die. In the Jews' mind, the whole purpose of the Messiah coming was to live forever, to reign forever, not to die. 
But the apostles clearly preach the real death of Jesus, the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, the apostle Paul wrote, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And if the death of Jesus is, is one side of, of the gospel coin, then you turn it over and the other side is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They go together. The reason Jesus died was to kill the power of sin and death over us, and the evidence that he killed the power of death is the fact that he rose from the dead. Peter preached that death could not hold Jesus down. And that's because Jesus is not only a man, right? This is how it all fits in. Jesus isn't only a man, but he's also all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe who has the, bil the ability to do whatever he wants, and that includes raising sinners from death by uniting them to himself as they trust in him and in the work he did for us on the cross. Jesus can do whatever he wants, and the other reason Peter gives to explain why death could not hold Jesus down is because God's word is perfectly true. In the ancient prophecies in the Old Testament of the Bible prophesied that God the Father would not abandon his son Jesus to Hades. He would not let his son see corruption, the corruption of his body. Instead, the Father would raise his son up from the grave, raise him up into heaven where Jesus is exalted and reigning until all his enemies are his footstool. So the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus must be preached when we preach the gospel. I have to be real clear about that. There's so many definitions of what the gospel is. The gospel is going and helping your neighbor. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not... Um, caring for sick people. That's not the gospel. That's a good um, consequence of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. The gospel at its core is the good news of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to save sinners. That's the core of the gospel. We have to, we have to really stay firm on that as Christians because we didn't create the message. The message was handed down to us from generation to generation that this is the gospel of God in God's holy word. Um, I lost where I'm at, so I'm going to keep going to the next one, okay? It's good news. Let's just say that's great news, and let's worship Jesus for that, okay? Fifth... Peter preaches that there is one God who exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is only one God, and he exists forever, eternally, as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And here in his speech, he refers to God the Father in verse 33, and he refers to God the Son in verse 36, and he refers to God the Holy Spirit in verse 33 as well. And some of us were like, oh, I've heard of the Trinity my whole life. You have to understand, this is groundbreaking stuff. Not that the Trinity was um, not in the Old Testament, but to see it 
clearly in the life of Jesus that all of a sudden we're calling Jesus Yahweh? We're calling him God, the name that we couldn't even say before for thousands of years? This is, big, this is a big deal. This, this doctrine is called the Trinity. Sometimes we, call, we say God is triune. Triune. He's three in one. And, uh, and the Jews had no problem affirming this. Uh, the Muslims have no problem affirming this, that the fact that God is one, that he's mono, that, that's called monotheistic religions, that there is one God. There are other religions who believe that. I mean, the Jews to this day, uh, Orthodox Jews, will recite the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But what the Jews, what the Muslims could not and still do not affirm is that the one God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, even though we see this in all of the Jewish scriptures uh, that we call the Old Testament, the Jews cannot affirm that this is true. And, and the Jews are not alone in this. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity, listen to this, the doctrine of the Trinity separates Christianity from all the other main religions in the world. Okay? Muslims believe there is one God. They don't believe in the Trinity. Neither do Hindus. They don't believe in one God. They believe in many gods. Neither Buddhists don't believe in the Trinity. Mormons don't believe in the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Trinity. But if you are a Christian, then you believe that God is triune. He is three in one. Think about the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity right there. Sixth, Peter preaches here that the triune God dearly loves his people. Isn't that great? He dearly loves his people. Romans 5.8 says that even while we were far off from God, even when we didn't want God, even when we were happy to chase the world and everything we could come up with in our minds that we thought would feel good to our flesh, God still loved us. Romans 5.8 says God still loved us. And here in Peter's sermon, he talks about the different ways that each person of the Trinity loves us. And each person has secured our salvation for us in a unique way. Peter says that God the Father delivered his son Jesus into the hands of lawless men according to his plan to save us. And Peter says that the Father raised his son both to declare Jesus just and vindicated and then also to declare everyone united to Jesus as just and vindicated in God's eyes. And then Peter says that God the Son, Jesus, offered himself to be crucified for us. No greater love has anyone than this, that a man laid his life down for his friends. Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to many people so that there would be many eyewitnesses to testify to his resurrection. And he was exalted in heaven where he reigns over all creation. He's our advocate in heaven because he loves us. Is that good news? God loves us. Now Peter says that God the Holy Spirit came from heaven to indwell Christians forever because he loves us. That... that uh, the Holy Spirit is alive. He's working in us. He's working around us with power within Christians individually and with God's church. 
because of God's love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done all of these things, and they continue to serve us. They continue to love us. Man, I love, if you read the Psalms, that is, they give us such a great picture, great words to describe the love of God. Abounding. Um, what else? Steadfast. Um, God forbears with us. It's, 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 it's a love that we can always count on, the love that we need, and the love that will not leave us or forsake us in Jesus Christ. We are dearly loved by God the Father and God the Son Jesus and God the Holy Spirit. Let's remember that today. And seventh, Peter preaches that our triune God is passionate for his own glory. He's passionate for his glory. Psalm 50, 11 to 15 says this, and this is God talking. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Get that? That last verse. You see that? That's what happens in salvation. He serves us. He delivers us. He saves us. And what's our response in this life and for eternity? We glorify him. That's what this gospel-centered journey of life is for those of us who are in Christ, seeking to glorify God as individuals, as families, as moms and dads, as uncles, as kids, as teenagers, as elderly, seeking to glorify God whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, pointing this world to the great God that has saved us. And Revelations 15, three to four says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb of God, saying, so this is the other end of Scripture. This is Revelation, okay, at the end times. Or, yeah, end times. It says, these, this is what these people are de- declaring. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So as the one true God of the universe who is holy and, and, and perfectly glorious and majestic, and he is above all creation, he deserves to be thanked. <laughs> he deserves our worship. He deserves to be exalted. He deserves to be adored by us. And in fact, when God created us humans, he designed us body and soul in a way so that we will experience maximum joy when we are glorifying him and when we are enjoying his glory. And the fullness of that glorification of God is expressed um, through what God does for us by saving us and redeeming us from death and the brokenness of sin and it will be fully consummated at the, uh, on the last day when Jesus returns and our bodies and souls are glorified. But get this, when Satan and his demons first rebelled against God, 
holy God who is alone holy, it was an affront to him. It was an affront to God and his glory. It dishonored God. And this is the opposite of how God deserves to be treated. This is why it's a big deal that Adam took that apple and he ate it. It's not about the apple. It's about what the apple represented. The, the Adam as the representative of us. He was the representative of, of, of us as a humanity. He rebelled against God. He rebelled against instructions. He rebelled against the glory of God. And he said, we're not going to do things your way. We don't trust you. That's what that was. We don't trust you, God. Satan and humanity together have mocked God. We have mocked his holy name. This is why humanity is under God's wrath. God has handed us over to it. You want your sin? Take it. See where it leads. It leads to the grave. It leads to brokenness in your life. It leads to shame. It leads to eternal damnation. Pursue it if that's what you want. And this is why the, the good news is so astounding. Because even though he released us to it, he breaks in, even though we maltreated him. He intervened in human history to rescue us from the damnation that we deserve for defaming his name. Amen. This is incredible. The salvation that he offers us in Jesus, it's all grace. It's all a dem demonstration of God's love and grace. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We simply trust that God loves us and that he did this for us in Jesus. And when we understand this, when we understand that the story of God's redemptive work in history, when we really understand this, we understand that it's not only about us. It's not about us. This universe is not about us. It's about God and his glory. We see that, that God's redemptive story is not only about our salvation, it's also about the restoration of God's glory among all his creation. In today's passage, Peter says that God the Father raised up his son Jesus from the grave to vindicate the name of God. He's vindicating the glory of God. Jesus' resurrection was not only to justify us, but also to declare to all creation that sin and a rebellion against God will not have the final word. Sin against God does not win. It always loses. The name of the Lord shall be praised among all peoples of the earth. And in his death on the cross, Jesus glorified the Father by putting Satan and his demons to shame. They thought they were shaming him, but he was shaming them eternally. Jesus' um, death broke the power of sin. It broke the power of death for us. Jesus demonstrated that this is what the power of God does. This is what the love of God does. This is what the love of God does for sinners. It buys back sinners. It makes them born again. It transforms their lives so that they will glorify God with their bodies and souls like they were created to do. This gospel, this is great news, not only because it's the power of God to save sinners like you and me, but also because it is the power of God to defeat Satan, to defeat sin and its power, to defeat death, to defeat the power of hell, and to regain the glory that belongs to God alone in heaven 
and around the entire globe among peoples of all nations. Okay, we're gonna recap. Seven core Christian beliefs that Peter teaches in today's message. First, God became a human being. Second, Jesus is fully man and fully God. Third, God's sovereignty works together with human choice to achieve God's plans. That's not only the resurrect, death and resurrection of Jesus, that's our own lives. Fourth, the death and resurrection of Jesus are essential to God's gospel. Fifth, there is one God who exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sixth, the triune God dearly loves his people. And seventh, our triune God is passionate for his glory. So, man, this week let's meditate on these wonderful truths from the Bible and respond and worship to God because of them. Boy, you gotta, I don't know. I don't, we can worship God in so many ways, but this just makes me want to sing. And so I don't know how you like to worship God through song, but find a way to do that this week. I don't know. And next Sunday, um, God willing, well, that baby did. Praise God. <laughs> next Sunday, God willing, we're going to look at how Peter shows the Jews that God the Father has clear, God the Father, okay? God the Father clearly testified that his son, Jesus, is both Lord and Christ. And in a minute, um, what we're going to do is we're going to invite everybody who believes this, who trusts in Jesus, to participate in the Lord's Supper together. So <clears throat> we're going to give the communion servers a moment to come forward. What I want to do is pray for us and give us a moment to also, I'll give us a moment of silence where I would like us to get real with God individually, privately, and if we have any sin that is hindering, hurting our fellowship with God right now and our relationship with God, I want you to confess that to God as the Holy Spirit leads you to do that and we'll celebrate our forgiveness. I'll close with that, okay? So let me open us in prayer and we'll have a little quiet time, okay? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good news um, that you've given us here uh, that, that even though uh, we defamed you and did not honor your name and your glory, you still loved us. And you still came for us. And even after you came for us, you didn't give up on us. Jesus, you endured for us. And you endured the mocking and the scorn and the cross for us. And even death couldn't hold you down. You were, you were raised by the power of God. You ate and drank with us. You showed us the power of your resurrection. You're exalted in glory. You are on high at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now, ruling and reigning over this earth. And God, our world is broken. And you know that. In our lives, God, we experience the brokenness of the sin in our lives. And we, uh, we need your help. We need your help. And we thank you, God, that that you have taken care of our greatest need of eternal salvation for us. And, and God, it's our desire not to just sit around and wait for that day when we experience the fullness of our salvation, but we need the freedom of your salvation from our sin right now in this life. And so we want to take a few moments and confess any sins privately now to you that you know and we know um, we've committed 
against you and against others, God, that may be hindering our fellowship with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our perfect Lamb of God. Thank you for being our mediator. Your word says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we know that for the, those who belong to you, our, our sins will not remove our salvation from you, but they could definitely hurt our fellowship with you. And so thank you for forgiving us because of your sin-bearing sin-killing work on the cross and resurrection for us, Jesus. May you be honored as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.